Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading will be found in 2 Kings chapter 8. I'll be starting at verse 1, and I'll be reading down to verse 6. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise, and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned to the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son had restored to life appealed to the king for his house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to introduce Ed real quick here. Uh, for those, those of you that don't know him, I've been given the privilege to introduce him. So he's been a pastor since uh, 1992. I think the math is like 30 years as a pastor. So I think he's faithful at at least one place. But Stacy and I uh, met him, I think it was 2011 at a Bible conference. Actually, I met his older son, Parker, and he kind of took to my uh, younger daughter, Maddie. But... Um, and that's how I started to know who these, these uh, people are from New York City, as I thought it was. But I didn't know it was one of the boroughs of Queens. But Ed is unique. He's a unique individual with a keen memory, because if you uh, say something, he has that knack of bringing it up. He knows how to connect the dots. He connects the dots both biblically and relationally. And he's connected us with a crazy bunch of people that go to New Hampshire every year. And um, sometimes it, it's good. It is good. It, it's, a, it's a crazy week, uh, but it's good. But he's always connecting believers with other believers and connecting believers with the Bible. I like that. I know that uh, it does happen. My daughter stayed with that family. There is a lot of craziness and chaos that happens, but there's a lot of connecting connecting the word with ourselves and connecting each other. I want you to listen to him, not because I know him or because he has cool friends, people from Georgia or Aruba or Scotland. I want you to listen to him because he's going to present the gospel. He will connect the good news to you who is a sinner. I want you to listen to it because you will hear the gospel from a man who's been preaching for over 30 years. Ed? Can you come up and preach the gospel? Good morning. Yes, and Matt, thank you for that kind introduction and what a joy it was last summer to have Gibson living in our house. Um, we, as you know, have this intern program in our church where we invite about a dozen college students to come and spend the summer with us. And uh, last summer... Uh, what a joy it was as Emma was with us. Uh, you have also sent from this church Logan Howard, 
And then there was another girl, I don't recall who she was. Oh, yes, the Gibson, yeah, or I'm sorry, uh, yes, uh, uh, Grace Jacobs, yes, I remember that now. Um, but uh, Emma actually won the award last year for being uh, most injured. Uh, and, and that's because she is, is such a tenacious athlete. Um, thank you very much for inviting us again to join you for this Memorial Day weekend. Your hospitality has been over the top. Uh, the organization that Stacy worked on uh, in order to coordinate bringing everyone together has just been flawless. Your hospitality, taking us into your homes, uh, feeding us and taking care of us, and just the joy and conversation that we have had with you. And then working together yesterday in the gospel to try to uh, reach this community. It was just a, a great delight. And as Matt prayed, we certainly hope that some of those with whom we spoke yesterday uh, will come to this church, but more importantly, will come to the Lord. Pastor Dave, thank you for the opportunity um, once again to bring the word of God. Thank you for giving up your, your pulpit. Uh, I do not want to presume uh, upon the fact that I have preached for 30 years. I want to lean heavily upon the Lord because what we are doing is the Lord's business and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. My topic today, generally speaking, is the topic of restoration. In order to illustrate this, let me tell you what happened to me several years ago when I visited a barber in New York City. I walked in and I told the barber, I said, listen, I don't have that much to work with on top, so just kind of take off a little bit, but, but create, if you will, some kind of a mirage or something so that I can move it around and appear as though I have hair, and so he begins to cut my hair. Now get the picture, I'm sitting in the barber chair, there's a large mirror that's in front of me, he's standing beside, behind me, he has his scissors in hand, and one of his friends walked into the barber shop at the time that I was getting my hair cut. He walked in and sat directly behind the barber, and I kid you not, the barber, as he was cutting my hair, turned and had a conversation with his friend. So I'm watching it happen. I'm, I'm, I'm watching my hair be cut, but the barber is not watching what's happening. At the end of that haircut, I said to myself, suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be. I now need what is known as restoration. I need things to go back the way that they were. That's what restoration is. It's taking things in the messed up situation that they are and getting them to go back the way that they used to be, back the way that they should be. We live in a world that is in need of restoration and I think you know why that is true. It is because of sin, because through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned and sin has infected every aspect of our world. Job put it this way, man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. And so we have relationships that break apart. We have finances that deteriorate. We have physical bodies that begin to get sick and to grow old. And then in the area where we need restoration the most, sometimes that is the place where we feel it the least, and that is in our relationship with God. We are a weak people. We are a people who need restoration. Well, I would like to illustrate 
how restoration works from an Old Testament text, which has already been read for you. That is 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And so if you have a copy of the scripture, I would ask, please, that you would turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. What I'm going to do is I'm just sort of going to work through it verse by verse. Then I'm going to make three observations from the text. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, now Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1, now Elisha. Who is Elisha? Well, Elisha is the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who came after Elijah, serving as a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So Elisha goes to a woman and he has a conversation with her. Who is the woman? Well, she's referred to in this text as the woman whose son had been raised to life. We know her as the Shunammite woman. She was introduced to us back in 2 Kings chapter 4. The story there is that you have this woman in the northern kingdom of Israel and her husband. Uh, they are very hospitable. They are so hospitable that they build a room on the top of their house so that when the prophet Elisha would pass through that way, there would be a place for him to stay. And Elisha was very appreciative of what the woman did. And so he went to her and he said, you've done so much for me. I have this permanent hotel room when I pass through here. Is there anything that I can do for you? The woman said, I don't need anything. I dwell among my people. I have everything that I want. Uh, but Elisha, in a conversation with his assistant Gehazi, learned that there was something that the woman did want. And Gehazi said to Elisha, he said, you know, this woman's getting a little bit older and her husband is already old. What she really would like is a child. And so Elisha said to her, next year at this time, you're going to have a baby. Fade in, fade out. A year later, the woman has a little boy. The little boy begins to grow older. He goes out into the field one day and he's working with his father. He begins to complain of a headache and he goes back into the house crawls up on his mother's lap, and there in her arms the little boy dies. The woman takes her son, goes up the steps to the apartment above her house where Elisha's bed is. She lays the little boy across that bed, and then she makes a 16-mile walk to Mount Carmel. That's where Elisha was at the time. And so this woman goes all the way to Mount Carmel. She finds Elisha. She tells Elisha, that her son has died, and Elisha probably by this time is not too fleet of foot. And so he says to his younger assistant Gehazi, here is my staff, I want you to take it, go back to the house, don't talk to anybody on the way, get there as fast as you can, lay the staff across the little boy's chest, and I will get there when I get there. And Elisha and the woman made the 16-mile walk from Mount Carmel back to Shunem. When they got there, Elisha enters the room and in what is probably the most unusual prayer meeting in all the Bible, Elisha raises the little boy to life. That is the woman that is being referred to here. And the text says, now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had raised to life, 
arise and depart with your household and sojourn or temporarily travel wherever you can. Why? For the Lord has called for a famine and it's going to come upon the land for seven years. Ma'am, I'm just giving you the heads up. There is about to be a famine and it's going to last for seven years. Anytime that we see in the land of Israel a famine, it is a result of covenant unfaithfulness. We know this because God promised his people in the law that if you obey me, one of the things that's going to happen is it's going to rain, and when, th when it rains, things are going to grow, and you will have plenty. However, if you are unfaithful to me, and if you are disobedient toward me, if you are idolatrous, one of the punishments or curses of the covenant is that it will stop raining and that famine will come upon the land. Well, this one was to be seven years, and to put that into perspective, please consider back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a famine that came upon the, the land under the ministry of Elijah, and that one was three and a half years, and during the three and a half year famine, people were dying. Think what would happen during a seven year famine. You've got to get out of here. You're not going to be able to survive. And so the woman gets up, she leaves with her family, and she goes into the land of the Philistines for seven years. Verse 2. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She believed him and she left. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, because the famine had ended and it was now safe to come back to Israel, safe to come back to Shunem, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Apparently what happened is she was gone for seven years, and while she was gone, some squatters moved into her house, and they took over her property, they took over her land. Maybe it was the government that confiscated her property, nothing ever changes, and now she comes back and she needs a place to live. She gets back, someone is living in her house, who do you go to if you want to have restoration? That's our word for the day. Who do you go to? Well, you go to the king. And so the woman, along with her son, goes to the king in order to appeal for her property. When we get to verse 4, I can tell you what the verse means. I can read the English words to you. I can probably even give you a pretty good explanation as to what happens. What I cannot give you in verse 4 is why this verse happens. For in my mind, it is one of the most baffling verses in all the Bible. But notice what the Word of God says. Now, the king, that is King Jehoram, who is he? He is a wicked king in the northern kingdom of Israel. He is the grandson of King uh, Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and the apple has not fallen far from the tree. He is a wicked, idolatrous, godless king. And he is having a conversation with Gehazi. Who is Gehazi? He is the former assistant of Elisha. He is a defrocked clergyman. He used to be in the ministry, but he is no longer in the ministry. And the reason why is because back in 2 Kings chapter 5, he tried to extort money from a Syrian general by the name of Naaman. And as a penalty, 
for his attempted extortion. He was a leper. And so now you have this wicked king speaking to this ex-clergyman who is leprous. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, I'm in verse 4, saying, here's what I want to know from you, Gehazi, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. The reason it is so baffling, first of all, is because I have no idea why this wicked king would want to know these things. Secondly, it is really crazy because this king, on at least two different occasions, tried to kill Elisha. It's also really crazy because this king, with his own eyes, had actually witnessed some of the miracles of Elisha. And it is furthermore just inexplicable because the person that he goes to to talk about is not really a credible source. He is one who is now out of the ministry. Nevertheless, the Bible says it. I believe it. This conversation has taken place. I will never be able to tell you why this conversation has taken place. So, we get to verse 5. And notice in the ESV, the second word. And while, W-H-I-L-E, meaning at the same time, and while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, speaking of the resurrection of the little boy who is the child of the Shunammite woman, while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, anytime you see the word behold, it means paint a picture in your mind's eye, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and right in front of you, here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Get the picture. I don't know if it's inside. I don't know if it's outside. I would imagine that there was some pretty good social distancing going on between the king and Gehazi. But one day, this wicked king summons this leprous Gehazi, and he says, I would like you to tell me everything that Elisha has done, which is miraculous. And Gehazi says, so you want me to tell you everything that has happened that Elisha has done that is miraculous? Well, king, I don't even know where to begin to start. You know that when Elijah went up into heaven, you remember that, swing low, sweet chariot, as the chariot is taking off into the sky, Elijah drops his mantle and Elisha catches it and he uses that in order to part the Jordan River and he walks across over to Jericho on dry ground. And now when he gets to the other side, he realizes in Jericho that the water is bitter. He puts salt in the water and it becomes sweet. From there, he's walking on and he goes to Bethel. And as he's on the way, he is mocked by some young people because he is bald. And two she-bears come out of the woods and they kill the 42 young people that are mocking the prophet. There was another time, King, where we were down by the Jordan River and there was an axe and it was a borrowed axe, and as someone was chopping down the tree, the axe head fell into the water, and Elisha comes over, and he waves a stick over the water, and the axe head floats to the top. 
There was another time, king, and you were there. Remember when you and your two friends who were kings got in that fight and you were out in the middle of the desert and you were about to die of thirst and Elisha produces water and it's not from a stream and it's not from rain. It just miraculously water appears and that appeared uh, as, 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 as uh, to be blood and, and the, the enemy came against us and we were able to defeat the enemy. King, you know that because you yourself were there. King, the reason why I am a leper today is because Elisha healed Naaman of leprosy, and he was a Syrian general. Uh, King, there were so many stories and so many things that happened. In fact, one time we were eating this stew, and there was poison in the stew, and we were going to die, but Elisha takes flour, and he puts it into the stew, and it becomes edible. King, there were so many things that happened. I can't even tell you all of them. But I want to tell you the wildest and the wackiest thing that ever happened. One time, King, there was this little boy. And I'm telling you, I was in the room with this boy alone. He wasn't sick. He wasn't injured. He wasn't wounded. He was dead. He was blue. He was cold. He was purple. He was dead. He was laid out flat, dead on this bed. And Elisha walks in and he lays on top of this boy and he prays for this boy. And this boy comes to. That's him. That's him. And that's his mother. Oh, Lord, the king, that is the boy that Elisha raised to life. At the exact time that he's telling this story, the little boy and his mother walk into the room. It says in verse 6, And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king wants to verify. Are you, is this choreographed? Like, did you, or is this a setup here? Are, are, are these facts true? So the king appointed an official for her, saying, restore, there's our word for the day, restoration, restore, get things back to where they used to be, get things back to the way they should be, restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, not only does she get her property back, not only does she get her land back, but she gets back everything that would have grown on that land for the past seven years. Complete and absolute restoration. So, what can we do with this story to teach us about restoration? Well, I want to make three observations. First of all, number one, our glorious message of restoration is always controlled by the design of providence, by divine providence. What is providence? Well, it is God's absolute control over everything that happens. It is God orchestrating the movement of the largest planet and the movement of the smallest molecule and everything in between. It is the fact that God is ruling over all, that he has a lock, L-O-C-K, on all things. He limits, orders, controls, and knows everything. The Westminster Confession says he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. The abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Article 4, says this concerning providence. 
that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. End quote. Providence. It is God directing traffic. And if God indeed is directing traffic, if indeed God is sovereign and he providentially works out everything that happens in the universe, and I mean everything, then there is no such thing as luck. For if luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. Nothing is random. You will hear young people say sometimes, oh, that was so random. In actuality, there is nothing that is random. God ordains and orchestrates everything that happens. There is nothing that is left to chance. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. You will hear people say sometimes when there is a confluence of two good things that come together to bring about a greater thing, they will say something, and, 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 and I know what they mean when they say this, but, but technically it, it, it's really inaccurate. They will say, that was such a God thing. Well, amen, that was such a God thing. However, can you point me to anything that has ever happened in the history of man that was not a God thing? Everything is a God thing if God indeed is in control. So I ask you, what are the mathematical probabilities at the same exact moment when the servant of the, of the man of God would be talking about the woman and her son that at that exact moment that she would walk into the presence of someone who could actually do something to help bring about restoration in her situation? What are the mathematical chances that after 2,550 days, that at exact moment, the woman would walk into the room when she and her son were being talked about. Are the chances one in a hundred? Hmm. More like one in a million. Or how about one in a billion? Las Vegas could not give you odds on that happening. Like there is no bookmaker who could calculate the odds of an exact confluence of that woman walking in seven years after she left when a king, and why the king would ever want to know this information, was being informed by the man of God of that miracle. But if God is directing traffic, the chances of it happening are 100%. And I say that this to, have to, say to, to inform you and to encourage you. I, I don't know what is going on in your life. But I do know, no matter what it is, there is somebody who knows, there is someone who is wise, and there is someone who is directing traffic. You are always exactly where you are supposed to be by the design of God. Let me give you an illustration of this. Several years ago, um, a friend of mine, whom I had been witnessing to for years, I've been trying to bring him to the Lord, and I was unsuccessful in all of my efforts to bring him the gospel. 
And there were a number of challenges in getting to know him. Uh, number one, uh, he was from a Jewish background. Number two, he was from a scientific background. Uh, not that science in any way contradicts the Bible, but he was, he was an atheist. So he was a Jewish atheist. He was a heroin addict, and he was homeless. And uh, in all my years of knowing him, I was only ever able to get him to come to church once, and that to no avail. Well, as he was uh, one day homeless and strung out on heroin, he was hit by a car, and he was taken to the hospital. And so I lost contact with him. Uh, I would try to call him. I would try to text him. I didn't hear from him. And he went into the hospital. When he went into the hospital, it was discovered that uh, the clothes that he was wearing could no longer be worn. They had to be thrown away. But he was for a couple of months in the hospital being dried out from his heroin addiction and from being hit by the car. There is a nurse who is taking care of him. She, at the time, was not a Christian, but she was a very kind and a very merciful person. And for two months, she took care of him. When it was time for him to leave the hospital and to go to a rehab center, it was discovered the man had no clothes. And so she reaches out to one of her parents' friends, a man who was roughly the same size as, as my friend, and said, listen, this guy has nothing to wear when he leaves the hospital. Could you, could you give me something for him to, to put on? So they get him outfitted, and he moves to a rehab center, which is 40 miles away from the hospital. When he gets to the rehab center, he connects with me, and he says, you're not going to believe where I've been for the last two months. Here's where I am right now. As Providence would have it, the place where the rehab center was was a town in another state from where I live, but a town where I know a number of Christians. And so I text these Christians, and, and I form a, a, a little text group, and I say, here's a man, here's his name, here's the rehab center where he is. Could anybody please go visit him and take him the gospel? Immediately, one woman jumps in and says, I know who this man is. My daughter is a nurse in the hospital where he has been cared for for the past two months. She doesn't know the Lord, but she loves this man and talks about him when she comes home from work. Another man is in the text group, and this is a man by the name of Chris. Chris is the one who donated his clothes. Chris texts and says, I'm on my way to the rehab center now. I don't know the man. I don't know what he looks like. I'm just going to go in and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. Long story short, this group of people that I texted, they were very tenacious and even maniacal in their pursuit of this man. And they would go in and they would share the gospel with him over and over to the point where he... Now here's a guy who has no friends, he has no family, he has no nothing. He called me up and he said, listen, I appreciate the visits, but you're going to have to call these people off because the only thing they ever want to do is talk to me about accepting Jesus as my Savior. Fade in, fade out, several weeks pass, and the man calls me up and he says, I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and the one thing 
that has gotten my attention, which has caused me to go from being an atheist to a believer in Christ, he said, I cannot wrap my mind around the mathematical probabilities that the same nurse that took care of me is the daughter of the woman that you sent and the clothes which were gotten to put on my back from her friends. You see, God used providence to open this man's heart. So, I don't know where you are in life right now. The only thing I can do is just give you assurance you are exactly where you should be, and not only geographically, but everything that has happened in your life up to this point is part of God's grand design to bring about what? Restoration. Here's point number two, and that is, our glorious message of, of restoration is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. In the context of pain. So, what was the greatest pain that the Shunammite woman ever experienced? Well, it was the death of her son. I don't even want to meditate upon that too long. Can you imagine, or at least envision, what it was like to walk 16 miles from Shunam? to Carmel with a dead son laying on a bed and then to walk 16 miles back. The pain of losing a son, you for many years were not able to have children and now that you have a child, this child dies in, uh, uh, at, at a very early age. The pain that she felt, I, 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 I don't want to even think about it too long. However, please note that if this little boy had not died, then the little boy would not have been raised to life. If the little boy had not been raised to life, then when the woman walked in to ask for restoration of her property, first of all, she probably would have been chastised for interrupting the king. Secondly, the king, when saying to her, who are you and what is your situation? And she would have explained, well, you know, I left for seven years and then I came back. The king would have said, ma'am, things are tough all over. We've just had seven years of famine. There are plenty of people who don't have homes right now. I'm sorry, lady, but I can't help you. What was it that caught the attention of the king that caused him to move in her direction with such kindness? It was the fact that she had a son who was dead who came back to life. And without that pain, there never would have been the miracle of resurrection and there never would have been restoration. Now again, I say to you, I don't know what pain you are going through right now. I don't know if your marriage is on the brink. I don't know if you're having trouble paying next month's rent. I don't know if you just have this nebulous thing going on in your mind known as depression. I don't know if there is a conflict between you and your parents or a conflict between you and your children or you and a neighbor. I don't know what you are going through right now. But as I said at the outset, we live in a broken world. We live in a world where entropy has an undefeated record. We live in a world where all of the king's horses and all of the king's men are just busy trying to get things together again. And it is just one need for restoration after another. Pain is a reality which we in a fallen world will always have to endure. Yet, I want to tell you today that that pain is not meaningless. That pain is not random. 
but oftentimes that pain is an essential ingredient that God is using to bring about great restoration. Consider the story of Joseph. If Joseph is not the favorite, then he is not hated by his brothers. If he's not hated by his brothers, he doesn't get sold into slavery. If he doesn't get sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. If he doesn't meet Potiphar, he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get falsely accused of rape. If he doesn't get accused of rape, he doesn't go to jail. If he doesn't go to jail, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, well, then he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream. And if he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream, well, then the cupbearer doesn't know that he can do that. And when Pharaoh has the dream, then during the seven years of plenty, what the Egyptians will do is they will take the produce and they will eat it and they will consume it. And then when the seven years of famine come, what will happen is there will not be any food. And if there is no food in that region of the world, well, then not only will the Egyptians starve, but his own family will starve. And if his own family starves, then his brother Judah dies. And if his brother Judah dies, then there is no King David. And if there is no King David, then there is no King David's greater son. And if there is no King David's greater son, Jesus Christ, you're going to hell and so am I. What was it that God used to bring about ultimate good? It was pain. So much so that Joseph can say at the end of his life to his brothers who are coming to apologize, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good as it is this day to save many people alive. He didn't even realize how great the magnitude of that restoration would be, which would result in greatness, but was prompted by pain. And likewise, I can say to you, I have no idea. I don't have any answers. I don't even have any guesses as to how God is going to use your pain to bring about good. But here's what I can tell you. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Not only the nice things, but also pain. God uses pain to bring about his purposes. He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. So if you're Joseph and you're in this, 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 this prison and you've been forgotten for two years, you've been accused of something that you didn't even do, you're all alone. If you put blinders on at that point, you can say, what is the purpose of this pain? Why am I now suffering? What is going on? He has no idea. But when you take the blinders off and you get in your gospel helicopter and you go up and you see the broad panorama of everything that God is doing, you say, aha, aha, this was for a reason. And not only did it happen, and not only did God take care of me for it, through it, but this was part of God's grand design to bring about his greater good. So you're going through pain today. I know you're going through pain today because you're living on planet Earth as a human being right now. I want to tell you, even though I cannot tell you how it is going to result in good, I'm going to tell you, based upon the providential grand design of God, that it will turn out for good because God is in control and he uses pain to accomplish his purposes. Brothers and sisters, what is the greatest pain that the world has ever known? It was six hours on Mount Calvary when the Son of God was 
estranged from his father because he was bearing in his body our sins upon the tree. And God, the Father, made his soul, that is the soul of Christ, an offering for sin. And he hammers his son to death for six hours to the point where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does God forsake Christ? It is because of your sin and because of my sin. And it is because of that pain that one day we will never have to pay for our sins. Our salvation is not only a story which includes pain. At its very essence, at the heart of the cross, is pain endured for us by the spotless Lamb of God. Pain is something that God uses. Which brings us to our third and final point, and that is that our glorious message must always be accompanied with a demonstration of divine power. Power. What was the power? Well, specifically, it is the power of a risen son. You see, as I stated earlier, the reason why the king was willing to restore her property was because her previously dead son was now alive and was standing at her side. There is something different about this woman. There is something special about this woman. And so if you will, please, follow the argument from the lesser to the greater, and by that I mean follow it objectively. If a wicked king named Jehoram an idolatrous king who wanted to kill the prophet of God is hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman and based upon that testimony, he was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he didn't even know based upon a boy who was dead but was now alive but a boy who would eventually die again permanently how much more, brothers and sisters, will a loving, good, intentional God not grant ultimate restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect, eternal son standing by our side as proof of our justification, a son who was dead, but yet a son who will be alive forevermore. You see, Jehoram was not looking at the merits of the woman. Who are you? I built, a, I built a, a room on the top of my house so that the prophet could stay there. Ma'am, I don't care about your good works. We just had a seven-year famine. I can't help you. There's one reason why that woman received restoration. It's because the king wasn't looking at her. It's because the king was looking at her risen son who was standing beside her. And in the final day, when you're going to need eternal restoration, that restoration is not going to come about because the king, the judge, is looking at you, but because the king is looking at his risen son who is standing beside you. Our restoration ultimately comes about through the power of a risen son. That is the objective truth. Now let me close by stating how this works itself out subjectively. Here we are. I mean, I'm standing behind a wooden pulpit. I have a book. 
I am saying words. You are listening to those words. This is all pretty simple stuff. And I am preaching to some people who are dead. Not wounded, not injured, but cold and blue and stiff and purple and dead theologically. Now I'm saying these words and I'm giving the word of God. You are intelligent people. You understand the English words that I am saying. You're paying attention. You follow the logical progression of everything that I'm saying. But if your heart is dead, you don't love God. You, 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 uh, this is not interesting to you. You don't want to serve him. You love your sin. You are unmoved. But what happens is when God's spirit comes and breathes life into you and causes you to see the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of the risen son, those things which were once either offensive or, or boring to you, now all of a sudden they become precious. And the songs which once did not move you at all. Now they melt your heart. And your eyes, which once were dry, are now filled with tears. And the people that you did not want to associate with, now you love these people with all of your heart. And this Christ, that was just sort of either a curse word or someone that we talked about at Easter or Christmas, now he becomes our all in all. How does that happen? It comes about through the power of the gospel. And what is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins... That he was buried, he was raised again on the third day through what? Boom! The power. And what you have in the gospel is the oomph. And that's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the oomph. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is that which takes the dead and brings it to life. And when the dead is raised to life, then we see it and we behold it and we embrace it and we have eyes to love it. It is then that restoration comes to our souls and to our lives and for our entire eternity, restoration which is peace with God. How does it come about? It comes about, ain't but one means, it is the power of a risen son. Do you know that risen son? Has he brought you to life? If he has not, today is the day of salvation. As you are sitting there right now, believe Cry out to Jesus Christ and ask him to have mercy upon you because restoration comes about through the power of a risen son.